John 16, verses 19 through 22 and 33. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, I'm going to let you all in on a little irony. In preparing this message, um, this is actually my fifth attempt. And so it's kind of frightening when you can't quite grasp peace and push it forward and bring it to a group of people in a congregation you love. And so like when you can't reach peace on a sermon about peace, it's, it's kind of frightening. Um, and so I tell you this honestly because this message was really hard for me. I labored, um, I prayed, I, I sought some wise counsel. And, you know, it's like the whole knowing and doing are different things. Um, and I, I tell you that because I'm coming to you today, honestly, as a fellow student. And so please accept this message. Please accept these words with all the humility I can muster. And sometimes my kids will tell you that's not much, but I'm going to do my best. <clears throat> um, but just know that as we go through this, it's a hard message, and it's, it's hard for me too. I don't, I don't stand up here expecting you to think or wanting you to think that I know what I'm talking about. I'm just doing my best deciphering God's word. And so a week from today, we're all going to wake up on a Sunday and celebrate. But the world, this country in particular, they're going to celebrate a commercialized day that starts with a chubby guy with a gray beard. It's not me. Um, this guy is actually being pulled around the world by a reindeer. And that day, it's going to end with just an orgy of torn gift wrappings, full bellies. Um, and something that's missing. And see, the truth is what's missing is much more humble and joyous. It's just most of the world seems to miss it. The church that day, our church, is going to celebrate joy, hope, peace, and love. Those are the weeks of Advent. And all those things lead up to the, the ultimate day, which is the birth of our Savior. So 700 years before that, Jesus was born, or 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah told us that for our iniquities, for our sin, the coming Messiah, he would be chastised, crushed even, but that through his pain, we would be healed and have peace, which is an odd message to hear. And Isaiah 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So it's this peace that Isaiah is prophesying that we're going to talk about today. And Advent helps us to look at that peace. It helps us to look backwards from where we sit today at Jesus' birth, but it should also remind us that we're living in between Advents. It should point us forward to the message that Jesus is not done. He's promised in Revelation through John that he's going to come back to us and he's going to bring heaven to earth. And when that happens, the whole world will know peace, finally. But world peace, it's not here yet. It's coming, but it's not yet. That's our first point. You see, the absence of peace, another way to look at it is strife. And in a world between nations, strife can sometimes lead to war. And so I did a little research for this message, and for the first time, our country's not at war in a long, long, long time. And when I say a long time, our country, we've been united as a country for 245 years. But for 226 of those years, we've been at war with somebody. That's kind of a scary number, especially for a nation that likes to consider itself and sometimes even publicly call itself a Christian nation. Now, I'm, I'm not up here trying to throw darts. Please don't kill the messenger. Um, I'm not saying there haven't been any worthy causes. I'm not saying there's no such thing as a just war. But I am saying when we read our scriptures that God is for peace and the enemy is for war. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a list of 10 countries here. Uh, Myanmar, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Mexico, Ukraine, Russia, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, and Eritrea. And you know what those countries have in common? Right now, today, they are in a major war. And a major war is defined as a conflict where over 10,000 combat-related deaths have occurred. So when I say our, war, our world is not at peace, I really mean our world is not at peace. So let's look at our own country. Let's look inside our borders, right? Let's, let's do a, a gut check on ourselves. Currently, we have two states, California and Oregon, that are arguing so vociferously within themselves that they're talking about splitting into two. I've got a friend who lives in eastern Oregon, and they're talking about becoming the great state of Jefferson, whatever that is. Um, we have war between our political parties. I don't know. I mean, even... Even somebody who's visual impaired could see that. We have conflict between church and state constantly. Um, it's in the news. We have finger pointing and name calling between churches, and we even have strife between people, people in the same church. We currently suffer under social tension, sexual tension, racial tension. I think you get the point. And my point is not to scare you. I mean, these are things that hopefully we kind of already understand. Um, and I'm also not into self-loathing. That's not what this is about. I'm just trying to tell you that our world right now is very far from peace, and we need to know why. And so as a, as a reminder, 2 Corinthians verse 4, 4, or 4, 4 tells us, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so notice there it says, small g, God of this world. The small g God of this world is our enemy. 
He's the major influence of the ideals, opinions, and views of the majority of our world. In John, which is what we're going to dig into in a little bit, John himself tells us in verse 12, 31, he tells us the enemy is the ruler of this world. And if, if that doesn't scare you, if that doesn't you know, make you sit back on your heels, it really should. Now, there's good news in there. It's not to say that the enemy rules the world completely. God is sovereign. And candidly, for reasons I fully don't grasp, and we certainly don't have time to get into today, he lets Satan operate within certain boundaries. But it's also helpful, at least for me, to remember that if God is the leader, but the enemy is a leader, then they both have followers. And if we take, when we take our eye off of Jesus, we can fall for some of the enemy's schemes and traps and begin to follow the wrong leader. And so as the guy standing up here, I just want to point that out to you. We've got to be careful not to follow the wrong leader. But all's not lost. Because as we follow Jesus and receive the peace he offers us, we also have the opportunity to be a part of his joy and be agents of peace. And in other ways, in other words, it's kind of like a, a, a pay-it-forward peace on behalf of Jesus. And we get to do that in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, and honestly, in the whole world. That's our primary mission as followers of Jesus, is to pay his love forward. In, you know, Jesus' probably most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. We've just defined you guys are the peacemakers. Blessed, and that you'll be called sons of God. And that, that seems like a really good thing to me. So I want us to embrace that. But let's dig over to verses uh, to John 16, the verses that we have set aside for today. <clears throat> because in those verses, Jesus is talking about inner peace for his, his followers, but he also alludes to peace on a world scale. So let's get into context. So in today's verses, what's happening is Jesus and his disciples, they've been together for three years. He's gone, he's invited them, they followed, and they've been studying with him daily for three straight years. And tonight, on the night of these verses, they're celebrating Passover. But this Passover is going to be a bit different because Jesus is different. And as an example, bear with me here, but 2,000 years ago, you know, there were no Nikes or Adidas. People wore these little floppy-looking sandals. There weren't any paved roads to speak of. It was dirt. And so what that did is that made for some pretty funky feet. And what typically happened is when you would go to somebody's house or go someplace as a guest, there would be a servant there to wash your feet. And on this night, on this particular Passover, Jesus unexpectedly begins to wash his servant's feet. And they don't like it. They push back. And Jesus washes their feet because he tells them, I have to do this. This is who I am, and this is who I want you to be going forward. And then he teaches, and he teaches, and he teaches, and he tells them that his earthly ministry is coming to an end. And he's going to leave them, but he'll be back. And it's strange, because as close as they are, as long as they've been together, his disciples just don't get it. And so Jesus is trying to prepare their hearts and their minds for what's about to happen, and he tells them the same thing, by my count, in just chapter 16, 
a dozen times. And if you look outside of chapter 16, he tells them more and more and more. And so the meal ends, the teachings of Jesus in that upper room end, and now they begin to walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. That is all except one of them. One of them had their feet washed, um, and he left in order to betray Jesus, and that's Judas Iscariot. And so Judas, G, uh, Judas excuse me, then goes to the Sanhedrin in, in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. He sells Jesus' location, essentially, so that Jesus can be arrested. And it's, it was interesting to me because I, I want to be a nerd. I'm not sure if I am or not, but I certainly want to be one. And when I looked into 30 pieces of silver, because that seems unique that they would put that in there so specifically. And, and you know what I found is that 30 pieces of silver would have bought something else then. That was the average price of a slave. And so it's interesting to me that it's as if Jesus sold himself into slavery for our sin. So here it is in that short, it's about a mile walk between the upper room, potentially, because we don't know exactly where it was in the garden, that Jesus turns to them and he addresses their unease. He knows they don't understand, and, and you can imagine they're all talking amongst themselves, trying to figure out, what is he talking about? So in, in 1619, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. So Jesus in this moment, he's referring to his arrest and death in just a few short hours. And a few days later, his resurrection. And then he says to them in verse 20, truly, truly, remember two trulys, there's emphasis there. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. See, Jesus knows that his disciples, his followers are going to be emotionally wrecked. And I mean, haven't we all been devastated by bad news? Haven't we all found out that we or a loved one has cancer, that a loved one has passed, that something horrible has happened? So Jesus recognizes, he acknowledges their devastation, but he also wants them to have a longer perspective. Because you see, Jesus in a few moments is going to be arrested, and he knows he's going to be beaten. He knows he'll be mocked. He knows many of his own followers are going to choose a notorious criminal instead of him. He knows he'll be sentenced in a sham of a trial for execution. He knows he's going to be nailed to a tree, and he knows that his dead body is going to lay in a tomb. Yet this is the love of Jesus, that as he's walking, he turns to them. Facing all these things in the next few hours, crushed for our iniquities, as Isaiah tells us, he turns to his disciples and he cares for their hearts. Because Jesus truly has peace. <clears throat> so the disciples, they will weep and they will lament, and they will lose their joy. But the world, as it points out here, the world is going to rejoice, which takes us in two different directions. So remember a moment ago we talked about the world having two leaders. There's the real leader, and then there's the false leader that so many follow. The false leader, the little g-god, his ethics are influencing the world. And the world, that world, is going to rejoice when an innocent man is railroaded and killed by the state. But the true leader, God, his followers, 
will ultimately rejoice because their sins and their pains will be forgiven and forgotten with Jesus' death and resurrection. But they won't understand until they're able to process their sorrow. So you see, Jesus sees the immediacy of the pain, but he also is pointing to the long-term gain. And Jesus, when I say he knows their sorrow, they're going to have sorrow at the loss of relationship. Imagine your best friend, your leader, your Messiah being taken away. And he's going to have sorrow at their humiliation. He's going to have sorrow at the way they view his humiliation. He has sorrow at the seeming victory of his enemies because all they hoped for, at least in their minds, is going to be lost. But Jesus tells them, your sorrow will turn to joy. And he's alluding to something much bigger. He's talking about redemption in that moment. And he's about to take the sins of the world, my sin, your sin, all of it, and he's going to put them all on his shoulders as he hangs on a cross and brings the world an offer of peace. In just a few hours, hanging there in agony, surrounded by an angry crowd, He's going to love so much. He's going to desire peace for you and for them so much that he looks up and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's an amazing amount of peace. And he says that because the world has been under great tension since, as Mark mentioned in Genesis 3, Adam brought sin into the garden. And when that sin was brought in, it brought a pressure between a perfect God and a sinful man. And that pressure at some point needed to be relieved. And God, in his perfect timing and through his perfect plan, introduced Jesus to the world to bridge the gap to provide that relief. And so while we're talking about relief, I want you to really, like we're going to hone in on that word. And relief in this sense is defined as the removal or lightening of something oppressive, painful, and distressing. Distressing. Charles Swindoll says it like this, if he were not rich in mercy, we might feel secure in God's love and we might be encouraged by his grace. But our lack of relief would hinder the presence of peace. The essential link between God's grace and our peace is his mercy. And what he's trying to say there is that God's love and grace let us know we are his, God's. But it's his mercy, it's his compassion, it's his blessing That's what links God's grace and our peace. So as a a weak example, I know that Linda loves me, and I certainly know that she has grace when I mess up because it's happened, Um, but it's her compassion, it's her mercy, it's her kindness that stills my heart and helps me to know that whatever it is, this moment's going to pass. And to explain it better, of course, Jesus talks about childbirth, verses 21 and 22. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now, I could, I could make a joke here, but then I, I would not be welcomed in my home, home because I am not qualified to speak about the pain of childbirth. Trust me. <clears throat> um, but I have been there for three of them, and I watched what the most important person in my world went through. 
in what looked like agony, what clearly was agony, the kind of pain that makes sweet Linda use words and say things that we don't say in church. Um, Suddenly, all of that shifted when that baby was born. So Jesus is saying that that pain is overshadowed by joy when something amazing, when something beautiful, when something Jesus-centering happens. And really, what it is, is he's bringing peace in a storm, right? Childbirth is a storm. It's explosive and crazy. And then all of a sudden, there's peace. And so the good news is, is that that's point number two for us. Jesus' peace is offered to everyone. Jesus had this funny way of hanging out with some pretty shady people. I don't know if you knew this. We've probably heard about prostitutes and tax collectors. Tax collectors were the traitors of Jewish society. We probably also know that the first people that announced Jesus' arrival were shepherds. You can't have a Christmas message or leading into a Christmas message without Luke, right? Luke 2 tells us, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. Well, that's interesting because did you know that shepherds were kind of scum? We have a, an idealized and beautiful view of them in modern society, but back then they were rough, unclean men. They were actually despised by the Jewish authorities because they had to tend the sheep all the time. They could not go to temple. They were considered ceremonial un- ceremonially unclean. And their reputation was so bad that their testimony was not accepted in court. So why would God choose shepherds to be the first ones to carry his message forward? And I think we have an answer born out of 1 Timothy, which says, This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And did you see that where it says all people? You see, if you look at, we'll call them the dregs of society, there's no power in them. There's no power in shepherds. And for that matter, there's no power in a baby. And yet shepherds are the first one to witness and proclaim Jesus' birth. And the baby, we all know how that story goes. He's going to be the one that brings it. And so God uses the unlikely, people like me, and the outcast because he loves them. He wants them, all of them, to come to him. He comes to shepherds and people like that in particular because they're humble and they're often longing for justice and righteousness. And he also comes to them because they're small and it's unexpected. You see, the world that follows the other guy They'll look at their humble position and know that they can't do anything. But our God, he takes them 
And he lifts them up so that people know only a great God could do that. Only a great God could grow them. Only a great God would use somebody so insignificant to proclaim his message and have it flourish. And he wants us, his followers, to help usher in that peace on earth to everyone. So I'm sure you guys are familiar with the old golden rule, rule, right? Love your God or love God and love your neighbor. So we as a as a congregation, we have as a church have been going through some parables. And when we went through the Good Samaritan, he told us everyone's our neighbor, right? <clears throat> and to prove that, Jesus is going to bear out suffering for all of us. The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus made perfect, was made perfect through suffering. And that's an odd thing, right? Made perfect through suffering. That seems odd. But being perfect means having been tested. So for instance, I can't get a perfect score on a test unless I actually take the test. And Jesus was tested, and through those tests, he was found perfect. And because he was found perfect, he's therefore trustworthy. And Jesus tells us in his word that trusting him brings peace. So I'm asking us to trust Jesus. In the same book in John, but a couple chapters earlier, in 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The thing about that is, do you believe it? Do we actually believe that no one can take our peace away? Because sometimes the trouble of this world get between the grace and the mercy offered by God. And when that happens, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, the peace leaves us. It's like we let the enemy stick his foot in our proverbial door. But there's good news. And this is point three for us. We can claim the peace of Jesus. You see, I think it's interesting, and I wanted to make sure we pointed it out, that the disciples have been front row witnesses and even participants in all that is Jesus. Miracles. I mean, healings. It just goes on and on and on. And they should understand his message of peace better than anyone. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And so in verse 33, Jesus turns to them and he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jews then, and certainly Jesus, believed that all time was divided into two ages. We call it oftentimes in this church the here and the not yet. Um, I like to also look at it as the present age and the age that is to come. So Jesus is pointing forward and through their troubles and saying, if you faithfully endure, the blessings are going to be precious. You see, the joy the world gives us is at the mercy of the world. The funnest day, the best night, the most incredible moment will always contain some insecurity, will always contain some doubt, and will always contain some question. But in Christian joy, the joy of the gift of Christ, there is no imperfection. He's been tested. The gap between the present age and the age that is to come still has pain. But Jesus points to the latter and says, I understand, I've been, I've been there. I've been in pain. But if you follow me, I'll take you there. And so we're living between the two advents right now. 
And it's a lot like the mom who moves past the pain when she looks at her newborn baby because the joy overshadows it. It's not gone. It's just not important. And so another way to say that is it's, it's a perspective thing, right? <clears throat> it all depends on your perspective. And so, you know, maybe the way you view the battlefield depends on where you're standing. And so, for instance, I used to really love war movies, one in particular. But then my son went overseas to war. In his experience, the danger he faced and how he came back, still beautiful, still wonderful, but different, changed my perspective on those movies because my view of the battlefield was changed through his eyes. <clears throat> and Jesus is telling his followers, people like you and me, that we will have troubles. I wish it was another way, but it's not. He calls them tribulation in that passage. But hold fast, he says. Stay, stay steady, he says. Don't lose faith. Trust in him. Be loyal. Even when it's hard, maybe especially when it's hard, because he'll give you peace. So let me tell you a little story that I think illustrates a path from anxiety to peace. Because as I started this off, I have anxiety. I don't always feel that peace, but I know I'm not alone. So on July 9th, 1861, everybody heard that? 1861. Fanny Appleton, don't, don't see a lot of Fannies in the nursery here. Come on, guys. Fanny Appleton, the wife of poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and the mother of his six children, tragically died after her dress caught fire. Now, in 1861, fire suppression wasn't exactly a science. And Henry, who was napping at the time, woke up and tried to extinguish his wife's body that was inflamed. And at first, he used a rug. And when the rug failed, he used his own body to put out her fire. She suffered such severe burns that she passed away the next day. And he was so severely burned that he was unable to attend her funeral. And if you've ever seen pictures of him, you'll also notice that he has a beard. And that's because the injuries were so severe that he had to stop shaving. And that beard became part of his image because of a facial disfigurement. So imagine Henry. He's alone and he's raising six children by himself. And these are not easy days, and the Civil War breaks out. And the Longfellows, they felt strongly about the war. And Charles, his oldest son, snuck out of the house in the middle of the night, boarded a train, and headed 400 miles to Washington, D.C. in order to join Lincoln's Union Army to fight in the Civil War. Well, this was against Henry's wishes. He didn't want his sons to have danger that close. And when Henry found out, he was fearful of losing his son, so he began writing letters. He wrote to senators, he wrote to the governor of Massachusetts, and he asked for a commission trying to get his son Charles an officer spot and away from the battlefield. Well, on December 1st, 1863, Henry received a telegram saying that Charlie had been wounded. The telegram inaccurately said that Charlie had been shot in the face. But in reality, Charlie had been shot through the left shoulder and the bullet had ex exited his right shoulder. So she went all the way across the upper part of his body 
and the bullet narrowly missed his spine by centimeters. So when Henry arrived at the hospital a few days later, the surgeons told him that paralysis was very possible and real, and that if he healed, it would take at least six months before there was anything that could be done. So imagine you're Henry. You've traumatically lost your wife to a fire. You've been disfigured trying to put the fire out. You have emotional scars. You have physical scars. He sees this country enter into a horrible civil war where brothers are fighting against brothers. And now he's afraid he's going to lose his oldest son. So Henry sat down on Christmas Day in 1863 and wrote a poem. And in the poem, he was trying to capture the anguish in his heart and the world around him. And as he wrote, he heard Christmas bells ringing in the distance. And he heard the singing of peace on earth from Luke 2.14. And in that moment, the world didn't feel right to him. It felt unjust and violent. And Henry felt his faith begin to slip and sorrow overcome him. And so to recite that poem, my good friend Trevor Wright is going to come up and tell you what Henry wrote. Um, maybe just as a prefatory note, uh, Belfry is a bell tower. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song. Oh, man, I haven't been able to get through this. Of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then, from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned, peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bellows more loud. Deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Thanks, Trevor. Longfellow, when he wrote that, felt that God was not present that God's promises were untrue because he was standing in the middle of a battlefield. His view was from a trench and obstructed by mud and grime of fear and loss. And I can relate. 
I've been there recently. But then the church bells rang and the singing of peace on earth, goodwill to men went across the corridor, across the street and snapped him out of it. And suddenly he knew, he knew that God was still in control, that Jesus would prevail and that peace on earth, goodwill to men was his victory. You see, his view of the battlefield changed. And in that view, in the long view, he had peace and he claimed it. You see, living between two advents, it's not always easy. The advent of Christ's birth and the advent of his final return, there's a lot of challenges there. And yet Jesus is teaching us. He taught his disciples then and he's teaching us now to keep, his, keep our eyes on him because it's in him that we will have peace everlasting. Remember, 700 years prior to his birth, Isaiah told everyone a Messiah was coming. And when that Messiah came, look how many of them missed it. Didn't have a clue. Don't miss it. It's right there. And when we, when we take on weight and responsibility that aren't ours, we allow the lies of the enemy to become a foot in our door. So do your best to renounce that anxiety. Proclaim the peace that comes through knowing Jesus. Turn your face to him and know that this journey, where we're at today, is temporary. It's a bus stop. Now, I, I have no illusion that this is easy. So if, you're, if you find yourself in a place of extreme suffering, I don't want you to think I've got it together. I don't want you to think me teaching this means... I got it better than you. I don't. And when I'm needing help, I try to go to God. And I turn to other believers. And I go to God first, and I go to fellowship with other believers because that's where the medicine is. And so here's some medicine, and it's the kind that doesn't necessarily taste good, but it's so critical for your soul. You see, the little G God of this world whispers in your ear and says, you're in charge. He doesn't deserve that car. You do. Look at their life. Yours will never be that good. You're too heavy. You're too thin. You didn't marry your soulmate. Life would be better if only you. And I need you to know that those are all lies of the enemy. You see, you and I were lousy gods. So why do we try to compete with the real one? Those things that we tell ourselves, if they do bring peace, I can promise you it's temporary. It doesn't last. And so what that means is that no one has hurt you, no one has wounded you more than you have when we buy into those lies. Some of us have lousy parents. Some of us have a crappy situation in our lives. So sorry. But don't let the lies of the enemy allow you to think those things control you. Those are a circumstance and a situation that with Jesus' peace you can get through. You see, the Christian life is about surrender. It's about giving your heart to the perfect Father. And have you ever thought deeply about 
what it is to have a perfect father, to be born into a family. It's funny, God's word tells us that we're born into his family and that we're adopted. We're his sons and daughters, right? So I don't know who has the newest baby here today, and I suppose it doesn't matter, but if I were to ask you, what's your baby's job? I'll tell you what your baby's job is. It's to depend entirely on you. Everything you have has just become his or hers. Your house, your baby owns it. Your car, your baby owns it. Your rest, (laughs) that's for the newborns, your baby owns it. Your peace, whatever peace you bring, your baby owns it. Am I right? So your baby's job is to need you. Your baby's job is to trust everything you have for him and receive the gifts you give him. So right now, because of you, your baby has the peace of someone who's truly loved. Haven't we all looked at a newborn and said, man, I wish I could sleep like that. And so that's you in God's arms, truly loved. So as we end here, I would say let, your pe- let his peace be your pace. That's how you pace yourself with God's peace. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.